morning, saints. Good morning. Please take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. We are a few weeks into our series uh, in Galatians. Uh, This letter from Paul to the churches in Galatia, it highlights the power and the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to give himself for our sins. He gave himself, Paul says, for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age. The gospel is called good news. That's what gospel means. Good news. And the gospel actually is good news. Because God does the work, not us. We are reconciled. We are redeemed. We are restored by the grace of God through faith alone in Christ alone. The gospel at its core runs counter to virtually every philosophy and religion and ideology that we find in the history of mankind. Because at some point... We are hardwired to assume that we are going to play a part in this process. We're going to work as hard as we possibly can, and then maybe God will make up the difference, if that's our perspective. The gospel is so beautiful because it is not that. Christ paid it all. He paid it all. And that is what Paul is addressing with the Galatians. Now, the drama that we encounter in Paul's letter to to the Galatians is a group of people called the Judaizers. They came into churches pretending to be sent by the apostles in Jerusalem. Their basic message is, we are the true bearers of truth. We are the ones who are connected to our forefathers. And they began demanding that everyone continue to keep the law. In order to be saved and much less to have a vibrant Christian life. They were essentially reverting everyone back to where they were before Christ. A performance-based religion. And it is, that is not what the gospel is. It is why it is so liberating and so life-giving. Paul is astonished that the Galatians are abandoning this beautiful gospel of freedom in Christ. You see, these Judaizers were deceitful. And they were actually seeking to undercut, if you will, the authority of Paul as an apostle. They were seeking to put a question in people's mind, not only the content of what Paul preached, but the position that Paul had in the first place. So in our text today, Paul addresses this very problem. 
He argues how ridiculous these people are in what they're saying. And he gives a bit of his own personal story, his testimony, to show that to undercut Paul is to come into direct contradiction with God himself, with what God has to say. So let's read our sermon text together. It's uh, Galatians chapter 1. And we'll pick it up in verse 11. For I would have you to know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, and I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my own pe- among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But, but is where the testimony begins. But when he who had set me apart from before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I am not lying. I then went on to the regions of Syria um, and Cilicia, and I, went, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea um, that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now Preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Amen. Paul is giving an argument because the Judaizers were calling into question whether Paul was actually an apostle or not. Think about it. Paul was not one of the original 12 disciples. He was never taught by Jesus during his earthly ministry. And I imagine his old colleagues and friends were mad at their old colleague for basically jumping ship to the other party. What Paul has to say is extraordinarily important. So I'd like to break down his argument into four parts. We're also going to make some very practical application about why Paul is even having to make this argument. I mean, think about it. Paul exchanged a life of comfort and respect and ease wholesale for a life of troubles and persecutions. 
He was the one who ministered among the Galatians. And now he has to defend himself. So let's look at what Paul brings to their attention. The first thing that Paul points out is the futility of arguing against his preaching because it was Christ himself who taught Paul the gospel. This is very important. The gospel that Paul was preaching, which is in accord with the other apostles, was given him by direct revelation from God and not from someone else. Remember the Damascus Road. Paul was heading one direction in life. He was zealous to destroy these pesky followers of the way. He set out to persecute Christians in another country in Syria. He gained special permission for this. He was intent to harass throw in jail, and even have some killed. It was there that Christ met him and and confronted him. And Paul was converted. That's a big change of events. The Lord Jesus called Paul. He set him aside To be an apostle. Imagine. Never lose sight of these things. The Lord will often pick the most unlikely of candidates to do his work. Because ultimately, it's all for his glory. So he will often choose people to do his work that others would look and say, Now why did you choose him? But Paul's very life was a testimony of the beauty and the power of the gospel. So the, the, the divine origin of his message that collaborated or corresponded with what the other apostles were already teaching, he said, you need to understand this. The Lord is the one who gave this to me. I'm not over here suffering, as they say, for my own health. Second thing that Paul argues. He is not in this to please men, but to please God. He reminds the Galatians that he absolutely used to hate Christians. That's important. I mean, he's, he's over here suffering for what he's doing. And they're saying, well, you're not the real thing. Guys, I used to hate Christians. I hated the church. It was my ambition to stamp out this little sect of religious zealots. There was no love lost between him and the church. No love lost between him and followers of Christ. He would harass them. He would have them thrown into jail. I'm sure there were many who died 
on account of Paul. Remember our introduction to Paul in Acts was when he stood over Stephen's body, the first recorded martyr, and gave full approval of them stoning him to death. But it doesn't stop there. He says, you're out of your mind if you think that I'm doing this for some ulterior reason because I hated the church. But not only that, but I loved, I loved my Judaism. I wasn't having a crisis of conscience. It's not as if in the background I was questioning, hmm, is this, is this really the right thing to do? Not at all. He points out that he had excelled as a Pharisee. He was very driven in what he did. He was loving every moment of it. It did not even cross his mind that he would jump over to the other side. He relished, he loved his participation in stopping or trying to stop the work of these Christians and the spread of the gospel. Now I must point out, I put Judaism on the screen. But he specifically calls out the traditions of his fathers as well. This is a big difference because the traditions of men that developed did not match the heart of God in the Hebrew scriptures. The Pharisees emerged as a religious group post-exile. They had noble intentions. Many scholars believed it was right um, as the captivity came to a close in Babylon, that the Pharisees came into prominence. And their goal was to ensure that the people would remain faithful to the word of God because they had just been judged for not doing so. But they added to that the oral traditions of their fathers. And over time, in that way, they strayed far from the heart of God. Their traditions became more important than the heart of God as expressed throughout the Hebrew scriptures. They became hypocrites and led people away from the heart of God for people. And it was these traditions that are really anti-God that Paul was so zealous for. He was advancing beyond his colleagues in the ranks of the Pharisees. Paul's testimony in this context is crystal clear. By God's grace, it pleased the Lord to save Paul. To reveal Jesus Christ to him. Paul was an enemy of Christ in every way, but God was determined to save him. That is the grace of God. 
Paul is converted dramatically and commissioned by God to be the mouthpiece of the gospel as an apostle, ultimately to the Gentiles. Through much suffering, Paul would serve the Lord as an original apostle, the foundation of the church. Fourth and final argument is connected to what he began with. The gospel was not something that he was taught by other people. You can't place him with other people who believe a certain thing. Because it was years before Paul would even meet up with the apostles. Three years before Paul would even meet with Peter. Can you imagine? Can you imagine for a moment the two weeks or so that they spent together? I mean, there's Peter, well known. The one with foot and mouth disease. Who had, look, we can identify with him. Virtually every turn, he makes a mistake. He puts his foot in his mouth. He's all zealous. And then he, then he messes up and all of these things. But now Peter is filled with and emboldened by the Holy Spirit in preaching the gospel. The first recorded evangelistic sermon we hear is at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. When Peter stands up and then there's Paul. Well, Paul's the guy who is trying to stop him from preaching. Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5. They took the apostles and they beat him. They, they beat them. They told them not to preach in the name of Jesus. So they preached in the name of Jesus everywhere they could go. Paul was a part of those efforts. And now they're having like this little retreat together. Can you imagine what that time was like? How edifying that was. But don't forget, James was a part of this too. James is a half-brother of Christ. James, in the, in, the, in the Gospels, it says that Jesus' brothers, his siblings, actually, if they could, wanted him committed to an insane asylum, or whatever the equivalent would be. He's out of his mind, the things he's saying. So Jesus' ministry was in the context of his own family, his own siblings rejecting him. But Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 15, that after Christ was resurrected, he appeared to large crowds, 500 or so. But he adds, and then he appeared to James, his brother. James, his brother, who denied who Christ truly was. Can you imagine that meetup? Hey, James, see these holes? They're for you. And so Paul is now meeting with James and with Peter. But that was three years in. By God's grace, Paul had exchanged everything he ever knew 
to preach the gospel. But Paul says, you cannot accuse me of getting some messed up message from some group of people. That's just not how it played out, and you know it. So God revealed the gospel to Paul by direct revelation. He hated Christians, and he loved the traditions of his forefathers. He certainly did not fine-tune his message under the tutelage of the apostles or anyone else. Paul continues now with his testimony well into chapter 2 and will continue to develop this theme next week. But this morning I would like to make specific application to our lives in regards to what Paul was experiencing. It is ironic that Paul was actually forced to argue the authenticity of his calling to the very people that he had converted. What a thankless job. I mean, like we've already said, he exchanged so much to be doing what he's doing. But as I was studying and reflecting on this passage, I was reminded of what you and I will often face when we resolve to serve the Lord. To be clear, you and I are not the Apostle Paul. However, Scriptures say that we are not ignorant of our adversaries' schemes. So you need to know, as you serve the Lord, as you seek to follow Christ with all of your heart, that you are going to experience pushback. In short, this pushback, some of which Paul faced with the Galatians, are the types of things that you and I will experience as well. So this morning we're going to look at four tactics of our, advers- of our adversary as we determine to serve the Lord. And I'm going to use examples from the Old Testament because I want you to see that this is something across Scripture. By doing so, I'm seeking to demonstrate that these tactics are long-standing, and they're all too predictable in our lives as well. And we do well when we can quickly recognize the discouragement or the distraction of the adversary in our own lives so that we can respond appropriately to it. Because we should never be surprised when these things happen. So, let's look at strategy number one. We pull up the next slide. Strategy number one is to be sidelined primarily in your own mind because of your past sins and mistakes. This is a common one. Essentially, this is your past. How could God ever use a person like me? Do you even know the real me? Do you know where I've been? If these people would only know where I've been, what I've done, who I used to be, who I used to be, what I used to be involved in. I mean, I might slip into the kingdom, but I mean, I don't think God's going to use me. Do you remember young Moses? Moses grew up in the court of the Pharaoh. 
took a walk one day and he saw one of his Hebrew brothers being bullied, beaten up by an Egyptian. Paul acted in the flesh. He took matters into his own hand. He stepped in, threw a punch or two, and killed the Egyptian. He buried him in the sand, hoping that no one would ever remember this incident. We'll read it together. Exodus 2, verse 13. I'm going to start in verse 12. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he thought he was in the clear, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now when he went out the next day, behold, two Egyptians were struggling together. And he said to the man in the, in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? To which he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? You're going to kill me? You're going to do the same to me as you did to the Egyptian? Note his response. Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. We often live our lives paralyzed by our own sin and failures. By no means am I belittling this, but the reality is we're all sinners saved by grace. Here's another one. This one is as old as mud. You, you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not strong enough. You're not wise enough. You're not experienced enough. People don't like you anyway, so why are you even bothering? I'm just, I'm being honest. Why, why are you even wasting your time? You don't belong here. Later on, Moses would experience this very dynamic himself. God set him apart to be the mouthpiece to the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh. That was a very heavy-duty job. He was a very powerful individual. If he didn't like you, if he didn't like what you said, off with your head right there. So here's Moses coming with a wonderful proposition for the king. Why don't you let all the Israelites go? Forfeit all the economic benefits that you derive from us. Just let us go. Because God told me to tell you this. I can assure you no one really wanted that job. But there's an added twist. Moses had a speaking impediment. Which made it doubly difficult for him. You see, in chapter 3 and 4 of Exodus... There is a quite humorous exchange, if I can call it that, between Moses and the Lord at the burning bush. You see, Moses kept insisting that God had the wrong person. 
you got it all wrong. You don't want me to be doing this. He reminds him of what God obviously already knew. Back and forth and back and forth they went. Exodus chapter 4. We'll read this together. Verse 11 through 13. Then the Lord said to him, Moses, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with specifically your mouth, and I will teach you what you shall speak. But he said, oh, Lord, please send someone else. He won't let it go. Can we blame him? This is what we face so often. The Lord puts something before us. And it doesn't have to be something specific necessarily, but just the idea of walking with the Lord in an honoring way. I, mean, I can't do this. And those thoughts that even show up in our own mind become amplified. A third tactic is the good old Quit while you're ahead. Why? Because you are a failure. You're not up to the task. Quit while you're ahead. Do yourself and everyone else a failure and just step aside. Now we're going to take you to Nehemiah. You might recall that Nehemiah after an extended time of fasting and prayer, sought permission to go to the ruins of Jerusalem after the captivity in Babylon. God put it in his heart to rebuild the wall. Such a noble undertaking. The people will begin to return to the land after generations of being in captivity in God's judgment. And Nehemiah would volunteer to start the reconstruction process. Let's look at this together. He was not greeted nicely when he came. Nehemiah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. So there were some locals who caught wind of what Nehemiah was doing. When Sanballat heard that we were building the wall... He was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. So here comes the opposition, verse 2. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are, th what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they yet sacrifice to their God? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Next verse. Oh, there's another one too. All these fine characters. Tobiah the Amorite was beside him and he said, yeah, whatever they're building, if a fox goes on it, it'll break down their stone wall. 
you know, little foxes that are so sleek and you're a failure. Why are you here, Nehemiah? I mean, look at what y'all have just been through. Just stop. Let's look at one more. We call this one the smear campaign. This one is tried and true. The common tactic in many spheres is to distract, to discourage, and to destroy. If I can't engage you on the truth, I'll just make up my own lies. Now, sadly, we see this in other spheres as well, but I want you to keep this focus to spiritual warfare. Nehemiah chapter 6. Verse 6, the, the opposition continues against Nehemiah. Verse 6, it is written, it is, there's a letter, by the way, I should say, there was a letter that was being delivered to them. Multiple attempts to deliver this. The fifth time, verse 5, his servant with an open letter in his hand, and it, and it reads this. It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it's true. That you and the Jews intend to rebel, and that is why you are building the wall. According to these reports, you wish Nehemiah to become their king. You have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is now a king in Judah, and now the king will hear all of these reports, the sitting king. And so now come and let us take counsel together. Stop it. Like, let's just think about this. We know why you're really here. <laughs> Nehemiah is like, look, I'm just here to build a wall. And as well, I gave up a life of comfort to do so. Let's look at that verse again. Next slide. With some highlights. It is reported. People are saying, have you heard? But not just a few people among the nations. And someone's confirmed it as well. Here's what you intend to do. Here's why you're here. You're here to rebel. That's why you're here. According to these reports, which he doesn't furnish, your goal is actually to become king. You have prophets set up to bear you out. Listen. The king's going to hear about this. Why don't we just talk this through? You can get off that dumb wall and you can go back to your day job. Look at what Nehemiah says, verse 8. Then I said to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them in your own mind. Have you ever encountered this? Someone comes with an allegation. You're like, what on earth are you talking about? None of that's true. Oh, the enemy loves this confusion. Verse 9. 
But he sums it up for us, and this is what I want you to see. Verse 9. For they all wanted to frighten us. This was their attempt to frighten us. Thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. His response is the right one. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. When I come up against this resistance, when I come up against, in this case, gossip and all manner of mistruth, strengthen me. So we'll continue on next week with Paul's testimony as we cross into chapter 2. But I just want you to remember this. When you read the struggles that Paul had in chapter 1 and 2, they were basically coming from the outside and calling into question everything that Paul was and what he was doing. You can expect the same. As we serve the Lord, we can expect for there to be opposition from time to time. And like I said earlier, I'm not saying you are the Apostle Paul. I'm simply drawing parallels from what I see all throughout Scripture. So strengthen yourself in the Lord. Find your hope in Him. The question I would ask is, are we encouraging and supporting one another? Are we edifying one another? Because that's what discipleship looks like in the New Testament. We're all in one another's lives, there to support, to help, to encourage, to hold accountable. The New Testament never casts a vision of us doing this by ourselves. It's all in the context of one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we give you thanks for the clarity and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We recognize that as we endeavor to serve you, to honor you with our lives, just as with the Apostle Paul, we can expect to find opposition, to face opposition. Jesus told us that many, many times. We have not signed up for a life of ease, but we know there will be bumps and challenges along the way. And we know that our adversary loves to stir up dissension. He loves to exploit misunderstandings. And we know there are times that he full-on opposes us, but we take heart because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Father, we pray that you would encourage and help each and every one of us this morning in our own walk with you, that we would also be diligent and intentional about helping and supporting one another. Thank you for the truth of the gospel, the clarity of the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. As always, our prayer is that if there is but one person who has not put their faith, their trust, their confidence in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that today would be the day 
that they put their confidence and trust in him and in him alone as their Lord and Savior. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.